0: So it's going to be Acts chapter 11, verses 19 to 34. So I'm going to have entitled The Spreading Flame." Why don't you follow along as I read? Here's what it says. Now then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except for Jews alone. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus." And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Now the news about them reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. And when he arrived, he witnessed the grace of God. He rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute hearts to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a considerable number were brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul, And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, and for an entire year, they met with the church and taught a considerable number, and the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Now at that time, some of the prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine over all the world, this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send uh, contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Paul, uh, Barnabas, and Saul to the elders. Uh, the title of my sermon is taken from a book by the same name written by the British uh, Bible scholar F.F. F. Bruce. In it, he traces the progress of Christianity from AD 33 at its beginning to the conversion of the English in the 5th century. And I'm guessing that the reason he chose the title, The Spreading Flame, is because it comes from the book of Acts, chapter 2, where we read about how the Holy Spirit came upon people and says, there seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. I think the Spirit was symbolized by tongues because the church was going to grow, grow through the proclamation of the gospel. And I think it has appeared as tongues of fire because when fire is ignited, it burns in every direction. That's what happened with the growth of the church. Starting with 120 followers of Jesus who were gathered in the upper room, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they went out in the streets and Peter began to preach to the crowds. And as he did, 3,000 people responded to his message and were added to the church that day. Just a few weeks later, Peter and John healed a man who was lame at the temple And they again preached the gospel to those gathered and more were saved. We're told that at that point, the church had grown to 5,000 men. That doesn't even include the wives and the children. So the total number of the church was probably around 20 to 25,000. But then Philip went to Samaria. He preached the gospel there and a good number of Samaritans were converted to the surprise of the Jews. I mean, that spreading flame of the Spirit's work was going in directions they didn't expect. Even more amazing though, And alarming to some were reports that were coming back to Jerusalem that Peter had spoken to some Gentiles at a house of a man named Cornelius, and that as a result of it, the Holy Spirit had come on them. They were shocked by this, and when they heard it, they said, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also repentance unto life. You know that by the end of the first century, a mere 67 years after Jesus died and rose again, churches had been established in over 100 cities across the Roman Empire, in Asia Minor, North Africa, parts of Southern Europe. And over the next hundred years past that, they were planted in Persia, India, and some scholars believe as far as China. And the historians try to account, though, for the rapid growth and dissemination of Christianity. Most point to a number of factors that they think allowed it to spread quickly. One is just the ease of travel at that time. know the Romans laid down roads across their entire empire. Do you know some of those roads are still being used today? Did you know they were the ones who invented cement? Well, because the Roman army kept the roads relatively free from bandits and their navy kept the sea free from pirates, it was possible for missionaries to travel in safety as they sought to get the good news out. It also helped that there was a common language. Greek was spoken throughout the Roman empire just like English is spoken by many across the globe today. When Suzanne and I went to visit my son, Nathan, in Croatia, we had no problem with the language because almost everyone there, especially the young people, speak English. That's the way it was with Greek in that day. Another factor was that there was a Jewish diaspora. The Jews were from the land of Israel, but by the time of the New Testament, they're actually more living outside the country than inside. If you looked across the empire, you'd see Jewish communities large ones in Rome and Alexandria, Egypt, but you'd also find synagogues as far west as Spain. When the Christian missionaries would go out, they'd always go first to the synagogues and proclaim Jesus as Israel's Messiah. In every place, the results were the same. Most of the Jews rejected the message, but some believed, and that small group became the core of a new church. Fourth reason was the high moral standards of the Christians. You see, the Greeks and Romans lived in a day very similar to ours with the sexual profligacy. Not surprising because their religion itself was debased. I mean, read about the myths of the Greek gods and Roman gods. They're portrayed as greedy and manipulative, lustful, and sometimes petty and unpredictable. By contrast, the God of the Bible is not many but one, and he's holy, he's consistent, and he's unchanging. And while Roman moralists like Seneca could talk in lofty terms, it was the Christians who actually lived lives of high standards and self-sacrifice. Probably the last reason, though, is the fact that it was a religion that was offered to everybody. I mean, the message that God had sent his son to die on a cross to pay for the sins of anyone who had trust in him so as to have eternal life was appealing. Everyone has to face death, not just the poor and the wretched, but also the rich and the powerful. Most converts did come from the lower classes. Many, in fact, were slaves, but there were some who were taken from high stations of life as well. And in Christianity, people were taught that everyone is equal in the eyes of God. We're all created in his image. We're all fallen sinners. Each one needs his grace and forgiveness, which is offered to all as a free gift if you would simply trust in Christ. Of course, all five of those reasons given for Christianity's rapid spread played into its success. But the ultimate reason was because the Holy Spirit had worked in the hearts of so many people when they heard the message so that they would turn from their sins and turn to Christ. Now, we've already seen that the conversion of Cornelius and his household and friends was a watershed moment for the church because that was the first time that a significant number of Gentiles had been converted after hearing the gospel. Well, here in chapter 11 at the end, the church takes another major step forward. For now, the gospel is going to be preached in a large city in Antioch, and the people there were almost all from pagan Gentile backgrounds. Well, today, to help you appreciate what God did and how that sp- uh, flame spread, uh, to reach the people of Antioch and how it continues to spread in our day, we want to consider this portion of God's word. So let's pray and get into the text. Father, I yeah. got you to pray for grace and mercy. I pray that as we look at this, you would warm our hearts and cause us to burn with a passion for the gospel. So bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I think we can break that text down into four parts. The first, you can label expansion. Expansion, that's verses 19 to 21, expansion. Second, encouragement, that's 22 to 24. Third, education, that's 25 to 26. And last, mutual care, and that's 27 to 30. Expansion. Do you remember what the last words Jesus spoke to his disciples before he returned to heaven? They'd asked him, they said, Lord, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the time or the epochs, which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the uttermost parts of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Now, they had done well in acting as Christ's witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, and they'd even established churches in Samaria. That was a big milestone because normally Jews and Samaritans despise each other. But by this point in chapter 11, 10 years had passed since Jesus had left, and they still were not seriously thinking about getting the gospel out to the remotest parts of the earth. Why not? I mean, if you could have gone back and asked one of the apostles at that time why they hadn't reached out to more Gentiles, sending missionaries to far off lands, what would they have said? Well, I imagine they would have answered along these lines. They would have said, yes, Jesus did tell us to go to the uttermost parts of the earth to bring the gospel even to the Gentiles. But he also told us to start with Jerusalem and Judea. Now, we certainly had some success in these areas, but there's still a lot of Jews who need to be reached before we can start going past this area. What the early Jewish followers of Jesus didn't understand was that this initial flood of positive responses that they saw among their countrymen was soon going to slow to a trickle and eventually dry up. Yes, some Jews were going to believe so as to be saved, but the overwhelming majority were going to reject Jesus as their Messiah, just as the Old Testament prophets had predicted. The Gentiles, on the other hand, would turn to the Lord in great numbers so that within a few decades, they would come to outnumber the Jews in the church by a great margin. Now, Moses predicted that this would happen. In his last address to Israel before he died, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, he laid out the future course of, of their history, including their fall into idolatry, for which God would send them into exile. In verse 21, God says this, They have made me jealous with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with what is not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Now, Paul tells us in Romans that that foolish nation by which God would make Israel jealous are the Gentiles and the church. You see, unlike the pure stock of Abraham that the Jews were from, Gentiles like us, who make up the majority of the church now, are a motley crew of people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Speaking to the Jewish leaders in his day about himself, Jesus said this, The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And then listen to what he said, Therefore, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who produce the fruit of it. And, he's, and he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but whoever it falls on will be scattered like the dust. Matthew 21, 41 to 42. You see, the Jewish followers of Jesus would eventually come to see and bemoan the rejection of the Messiah by their countrymen. But at this point, they were still focused on reaching Jews. And that's why we read in verse 19, so then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia, and Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one but Jews alone. Now, to set up the story, Luke goes back to an event that had taken place a number of years before, the martyrdom of Stephen and the persecution of the church that follows. Remember, a lot of the people scattered right after that. Nothing wrong with that. Jesus said, if they persecute you in one city, go on to the next city. These religious refugees took Jesus' advice to heart. Rather than being gunned down in the street, they thought it was time to get out of Dodge. So they went north to Phoenicia, modern day Lebanon. They sailed west to the island of Cyprus and still others headed to Antioch, the third largest city in the empire. Wherever they went, they brought the gospel message with them. But they were still not getting with the program because they were speaking to no one except for the Jews. But it says, there were some men from Cyprus and Cyrene, that would be North Africa, who came to Antioch and began speaking to Greeks also. Preaching to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I was a kid. Uh, my mom would often play KTIS radio on our stereo. And uh, KTIS was a Christian station which often had a lot of pastors preaching. And I remember one of them I used to listen to as a kid was uh, Spiros Zodiatis, who was a uh, head of an organization that uh, was known as AMG, the American Mission to the Greeks. It was set up to reach Greek immigrants coming to America. Well, there was an AMG back then as well, an Antioch mission to the Greeks. Now, notice, though, we're not told that this was done by the apostles. Matter of fact, we're not even told who these people were. All we know was that they were ordinary believers that God had used in a powerful way. I mean, you don't have to be a professional minister to be used by God. Most people who come to faith come through the witness of a family member or a friend. You know, in that book, The Spreading Flame, F.F. Bruce argues that one of the reasons the church spread so rapidly was because every Christian saw himself or herself as an informal missionary. I mean, think about it. You have a unique circle of friends, family members, neighbors, and coworkers that God has placed you in the center of. No one else has that same circle. God has placed you within that circle to reach those who are around you. of course, we want to widen that circle to reach even more. And notice what they preached. It wasn't politics. It wasn't social justice. It wasn't self-help or five ways to a better marriage. It wasn't your best life now. No, they preached the Lord Jesus. What the church is supposed to proclaim to the world is the person and work of Jesus Christ. As Paul would later say, for indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block. And to the Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1, to 24. Now these unknown believers reached out to the Greeks and God honored their vision and blessed their efforts because we read this. And the hand of the Lord was with them and a large number believed and turned to the Lord. So this, this fire, these flames were coming across the city of Antioch like a prairie fire. I mean, it just warms your heart to hear it, doesn't it? I want to hear about another place where the flame of the gospel is spreading, the country of Iran. Forty years ago, the Shah of Iran was overthrown, and an Islamic republic was set up in that nation, the first one in the entire world. Well, how excited the people were at that time. I mean, now, finally, that Islam is in place. The world's going to see how it can produce a just and prosperous society. Grand promises but failed results. The corrupt government of the Shah was replaced by the corrupt government of the Mullahs. The people living under it have not only become disgusted with their leaders, but disillusioned with Islam itself. Did you know that in a recent survey of Iranians, only 40% still consider themselves to be Muslim? 60% don't. Many of them have become functional atheists. Others have turned to New Age religion, but a lot of them have turned to Christ. Iran has the fastest growing church in the world today. Well, just as there were good reports coming out of Iran today, there were good reports coming back from Antioch in that day. And the leaders back in the church in Jerusalem wanted to get a clear picture. So they sent Barnabas to check it out. And that brings us to our second heading, encouragement. This is 22 to 24. It says in verse 22, the news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Now, Barnabas has already been introduced to us in chapter four. His name was actually Joseph. He was a Jew from the tribe of Levi who lived in the island of Cyprus. who's given the name Barnabas because it means son of encouragement. Evidently, he was an encouraging person. Do you know people who should have different nicknames? Like Debbie Downer or Negative Ned? You know the type? They're like Eeyore the donkey and Winnie the Pooh. Always glum, gloomy, pessimistic. When things don't go well, Eeyore says, could be worse. Not sure how, but it could be. When he's given a bright balloon, he says, sure, a cheerful color. Yes, I'll have to get used to it. Don't bring me down. Bruce, don't bring me down. Barnabas was just the opposite of that. He wasn't a doggy downer. He was a puppy upper. You know, the Christian psychologist Larry Crabb wrote a book entitled Encouragement, The Key to Caring. And I think he was right. You know, there's enough people in this world who want to bring you down. Be one of those people who lifts others up. The biblical word for that is edification. Look what it says in verse 23. Then when he arrived... And witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced. Believers should rejoice and be happy every time we see God working in the lives of others. I mean, writing to the believers that he had invested his life energies in, to the aged apostle John said this, Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. For I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth. That is how you're walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. Well, these new Greek believers in Antioch were people that someone else had led to the Lord. But wherever we see God's grace, we should be happy because believers are all on the same side. And Barnabas wanted to be a blessing to these people. And so it says he began to encourage them all with resolute hearts to remain true to the Lord for he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Now, wouldn't you like to be described in those terms? He's a good man. She's a good woman. It's full of Holy Spirit and faith. What Barnabas was encouraging them to do was to remain true to the Lord. I mean, keep trusting Jesus. Keep following his commandments. Stay close to him. Fix your eyes on him. All of us need that kind of encouragement daily, don't we? And a considerable number, it says, were brought to the Lord. And Barnabas was encouraging others, and the fact that so many were saved was encouraging him. But with so many new converts, he knew that he would need help to teach them. these Greeks. And so what did he do? We find that in the next section. One you can title education. William Farrell. He was a French evangelist during the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s. After being persecuted in France, he fled to Switzerland and began pastoring a church in Geneva. But then in 1536, another young theologian came to Switzerland from France, a man named John Calvin. Now, Pharaoh saw that Calvin was a man with a sharp mind and a firm grasp on the scripture. And so he pleaded with Calvin to come to Geneva. And when he did, he let him take over the pastoring of the church. And Calvin became one of the main pillars of the Protestant Reformation. Well, centuries before, Barnabas did something similar. Seeing the need to educate these new Greek converts in the Christian faith, He knew that there was only one man for the job. And that's why we read in verse 15, or verse 25, it says, and he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. By the way, that's about a hundred miles from Antioch to Tarsus, where Paul was living. But part of us knew that Paul was the go-to man. If he wanted these new converts to be grounded in their understanding so that they might have rock-solid faith, then Paul was the man to teach him. It says in verse 26, and so when he found him, he brought him to Antioch, And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now, you know, they say that when it comes to selling a house, the three most important factors are location, location, location. I mean, take a house around here in rural Wisconsin. The same house that sells for $200,000 here would sell for $1.8 million in San Francisco. But for only $20,000 in the city of Detroit. I mean, who wants to live in Detroit? What matters is location, location, location. Listen carefully, folks. When it comes to picking a church to attend, what matters most is Scripture, Scripture, Scripture. Does the pastor of the church carefully, consistently, constantly, systematically, and accurately teach and preach the Word of God? Proverbs 23, 7 says, As a man thinks in his heart so is he. In other words, all of our choices and all of our decisions flow out of our understanding and our values. Let me give you just one example. Suppose you got a man who's a workaholic. He puts in 70, 80 hours a week, no matter what. And uh, if they ask him, he'll work on Sunday as well. His wife is upset because he's never home. The kids are acting up. And even as, when he is home, he's out in his shop. Why does he work so much? He doesn't need the money. He doesn't even have time to spend it. He's working himself to death and destroying his marriage and family in the process. And even though he feels guilty at times for doing this, he can't stop. Why not? It's because he believes that his worth and value as a man is measured by what he accomplishes. This is what he always heard from his dad growing up. Will he ever change? Not as long as he holds on to that belief. Romans 12.2 says this, Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, the Greeks in Antioch, like Americans in our country, learn and come to believe all kinds of things that are not only false, but destructive. They need to have their minds renewed. So it's to get rid of those false ideas and replace them with the truth of the word of God. The Bible says all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so the man of God would be adequate, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. Proverbs 119, 105 says this, your word is a lamp unto my path and a light, a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And think about it, in this world, in our culture that's growing ever darker, You need the light of God's truth to keep from stumbling. So you should go to a church not because they have a great praise band or a good softball team. You shouldn't go just because your family goes there or because you have friends or the youth group has activities that will keep your kids out of trouble. You should go to church because they accurately teach the word of God week in and week out. And that's what we try to do here. On Sunday morning, Chris and I go through whole books of the Bible, preaching verse by verse. In Sunday school, we focus on God and who he is, like the one we're doing this quarter, the attributes of God. We do home Bible studies where you can have fellowship but also learn the word of God. There's nothing, nothing, nothing more important to your spiritual health and well-being than learning the word of God. Think about it. Jesus, in praying for his disciples on that last night, said this, Father, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Because think about it. If you don't live by the truth, you'll end up living by lies. And that can't possibly end well. So Barnabas encouraged these new believers and Paul taught these new believers to establish them firm in their faith. And that's what we want for you here as well. That flame was not only spreading, but it was burning bright and hot because the Greeks were being taught well. And just as a side note, it was here where they first called the followers of Jesus Christians. And by the way, they didn't mean it as a compliment. Well, that brings us to our last point, though. That's the mutual care. And this is found in verses 27 to 30. Here's what he says. It says, now at that time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and began to indicate by the spirit that there would certainly be a great famine over all the world. Now, the early church not only had apostles, they also had prophets. There are some today who claim that they have this gift as to be able to predict accurately the future. But I think those claims are spurious and false. But this Agabus was indeed speaking for God. We know that because Luke tells us that this took place, this prophecy, in the reign of Claudius. It says, In proportion, that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. So the Jews tended to be suspicious and contemptuous of Gentiles. But when you're suffering and you have nothing to eat and the care package arrives, from Antioch, and it's got a Gentile name on it, your attitude begins to soften and change. Now notice how God had been working up to this point through dreams and visions, through teachings and prophecies, to build up the church, to bring together a body of believers who mutually love, support, and encourage one another as they're bringing the gospel message to the world. And that's what we're trying to do with you here today. We want you to work with and build up the church so that we can proclaim the truth of Christ crucified and resurrected so that sinners can be reconciled to God. What I'm asking you to do is add fuel to the fire so that the flame will continue to burn and spread. Because I want to tell you something. I just thought about this right now. There was a man who came into his pastor's office one time. He was so excited. He was just jumping around. And he said, oh, I just had the most exciting experience in my life. What's that? So I got to lead a guy to the Lord. Oh, it was just great. And the man, there was a change in him. Oh, this is the most exciting thing that ever happened. You know who that man was? Benjamin Harrison. He had already been president. And he said the most exciting thing he had ever done in his life was lead someone to Christ. And I guarantee if God gives you the privilege of doing that, or even being part of it, you will find that that's the most exciting thing that ever happens in your life. May God be praised. Let's pray. Our Father and God, you do pray for grace and mercy. Um, the gospel is going to go forward. And we're going to see in the next couple stories that despite the fact that there's people who are trying to kill off the Christians, uh, you dealt with them and the gospel still went forward. But Father and God, it's going forward even in our day. That's why we send out missionaries. But we want not only to witness to people across the pond, we want to witness to people in our, uh, across the street. And so we pray, Father and God, that you'd give us all opportunities to share the gospel message and that we'd see people come to faith as a result. So bless us now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. What are we saying, Dina?